you're tuning in to an episode from Adventure Emerge 2021, the number one entrepreneurship conference for students and researchers worldwide. This episode is brought to you by our event sponsors, Edinburgh Innovations and Vonage. Being a founder is almost by definition always uncomfortable because you're always doing the thing that hasn't been figured out yet. It's an extreme pleasure to invite Rob Fitzpatrick and host him here. Personally, one of my one of my favorites in the world of of startup education, a, a really fun, engaging guy. You'll see that over the following 40 minutes. I'll just give you a, a very brief introduction on Rob, but that will be then my first question because he tells the story in probably a, a much better way, but he is a truly experienced entrepreneur of more than 13 years. I think that statistic might be, might be a bit old, maybe 14, because he was YC in summer 07, I believe. When, when he did, he, he attempted to figure out social advertising before Facebook or I mean meta and nowadays, and, and he got several big customers like Sony MTV. And since then he's a, he's a true creator who never stopped innovating. Now, I, I don't want to spoil the first question once again, but he did a bunch of cool stuff. I heard about a card game on Kickstarter, building his own sailboat, which, which was just super exciting to read. And now, obviously, he's mainly known for his unique approach to doing customer development, validation, sales. You've definitely heard of the super famous book and framework or methodology, The Mom Test, now taught at many of the top universities, so presumably yours as well. Uh, I know we have a lot of UCL, Imperial students, Harvard, MIT, many more. And now he's focusing more on writing. He has written two more books, The Workshop Survival Guide, about teaching workshops and write useful books about, well, writing useful books. So Rob, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And I'll start off with the first question. You have a unique story. Tell us more about your story. How did you get into entrepreneurship? What are the cool projects you've been working on? And also what's happening in the world of rebuilding? Well, I, uh, I sold my boat during uh, when COVID started. So I moved up to the mountains. I was ready for a bit more nature and a bit less city. But yeah, I fell into startups because I, I wanted a job that was free of bureaucracy. And so I thought I could get that in academia, just studying. You know, I love pursuing ideas, following my curiosity. And then as I, I started grad school, I realized that, you know, there is some bureaucracy in academia more than I, I wanted to deal with. And at the same time, I heard about startups. And so, you know, as you mentioned, we pitched, we basically took my master's research which was about experimental video games and educational video games. And we pitched it to Y Combinator. We tried to reframe the research as a business and uh, Paul Graham said, no, that's a terrible idea. It'll never work and it'll never scale. But he liked the team that we'd built and he liked the, the demos and the prototypes and everything. He thought we were a good product team, which was true. And so he kind of worked with us to come up with a more plausible business idea. And they ended up investing in that. And we, we spent four years working on that. As you mentioned, it didn't work out, but I, I fell in love with startups and I, I couldn't imagine going back. And that, that first company was venture-backed and we were trying to go the hyper-growth route. And after that, I was pretty burned out emotionally. I was pretty broke financially due to the fallout from the first business. And so I got more focused on kind of freedom-oriented businesses. How can I free up my time? How can I be flexible in the location I'm in so I can travel and do the stuff I want? And I did a bunch of different industries, digital, real world, physical products, as you mentioned. We manufactured a card game that I designed, built a services business, an education agency. And then recently I've been getting back into tech and yeah, it's a blast. So I, I love products of all types. 
And what, what kind of ties together my experiences and what led me to the book is that, so when you start a business, you often end up doing jobs that you're not good at because it's the founder's job to figure out the next thing. And as soon as you figure it out, you hire someone to do it. And then you move on to the next thing that's not figured out yet. So being a founder is almost by definition, always uncomfortable because you're always doing the thing that hasn't been figured out yet. And for me, as an introverted technical person, I was a programmer. I ended up having to figure out enterprise sales, selling to these big, you know, governments, movie studios, music labels, entertainment. It's like, right. And it was hard. It was painful and it was hard. And uh, they were lying to me. The sales weren't going through. Everything was slower than it should be. And uh, when I eventually figured it out, we were already too late, but it was the learnings from that, you know, that painful period and figuring it out later that became the, the ideas in the mom test, which if you haven't read it, the main idea is that if you're asking for feedback about a business, which you should, you can't just say, here's my business. What do you think? Because if you do that, everyone's going to give you compliments or opinions. Instead, what you want to do is don't talk about your idea at all, if possible. And instead ask about their life. What are they already doing and why are they doing it that way? Don't say, do you want my incredible security software? Say, hey, weird question. Talk me through how you think about security. And you can tell by the responses what they're already doing and why they're doing it that way, how important it is, how much money it costs them, all this stuff. And then you make your own decision as a founder. Okay, now I understand the customer's worldview. Do I think my product's going to fit into their life, their world, their business, et cetera? And, and you can get around a lot of the biases like that if you take more responsibility for finding the truth. Would you would you say that founders and entrepreneurs usually don't go uh, down this 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 route by, by default? Do you think it's more of like a, a knowledge thing uh, where, okay, I haven't read the mom test. However, I wanted to to address your book like like the the anti-COVID or the anti-bacteria gel where like 99.99% of germs survive. So in the same way, the mom test is something that 99.99% of like the pro entrepreneurs have, have read, but like those that don't basically follow the rules of the mom test, do you think it's more uh, down to like a knowledge gap or do you think it's something more that we just fear the rejection? No, I think normally we mess it up because we just get too excited. Like you've spent all your time thinking about this idea, thinking about the, the future, thinking about your product, the features, the potential, you know, and we get excited about it, which is, it's good. It's correct to be excited because building a business is a long grind and it's hard work and you, you need to care. Otherwise you're not going to get through the difficult parts, but then that excitement, that enthusiasm, it works against you when you're trying to get feedback because your excitement is contagious. You want to talk about all the amazing things it's going to do. You want to talk about how how much is going to affect and change the future. And other people buy into that. They go, yeah, wow, it's amazing. It's so innovative. I've never heard of anything like that before. And you're both just getting more and more excited. <laughs> But ultimately, are they going to become a customer or not? That's what matters. That's what you're trying to figure out. And people can get so excited and so supportive, but they're still not customers, right? And and then you leave the meeting and you've got a bunch of feature requests and ideas, but these feature requests, and I, they, they didn't come from a customer. And even when it is a customer, they're still... There's also some some hands-on stuff to fi figure out. Like if you were learning skateboarding, you would expect to fall over a few times, right? And because it's a hands-on skill, hands-on skills you need to practice. And the same is true when, when you're trying to get good customer understanding and insight, because you're trying to learn about a topic and, and keep people on track, but you're also trying not to completely just pitch your idea. You're trying to keep the conversation focused on them and their life and their decision-making. But also that's a weird conversation to have, especially if they're a stranger. 
And so there's a, a bit of hands-on practice to guiding the conversation. And there's also a bit of a hands-on skill to creating that safe space at the beginning where they're even willing to have this conversation because they don't want to feel like their time's being wasted. And so, and you're going to screw up a few times. I screwed up a lot of times, you know, hopefully you screw up less than I did. So there's that initial practice stage. And then there's also this, this ongoing challenge with, with just our excitement. And it's way harder if you're not the boss. So if you're the founder, you can be in the room and you're like, wow, nobody cares about this. They're not going to buy this. And you can have that realization and, and, and decide that you need to make a big strategic adjustment. Don't give up, never give up, but maybe you need to change the product, change the customer segment, change the way you describe it, change who you're talking to within the organization, right? If you're an employee and you go to your boss, you go, hey, boss, great news. I found out everybody hates what we're building and no one's going to use it. Like the, the, the boss is not going to take that well. They're just going to. And so it's a place where it really has to be founder led. It's hard to outsource and it's hard to do if someone hires you to do it. Like it's got to be done by the people in charge in most cases, unless there's a tremendous amount of trust. And so, yeah, it's something you got to learn. You got to learn it for yourself. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but once you've, once you've gotten through that initial stage, it's like a superpower because imagine there's one important feature in your product that you realize you don't need to build. You just saved three months of development time or six months of development time. That's as good as someone giving you a hundred grand, right? Cause like investment money goes to pay for development time. And if you can just save that time by not running down the dead end, that's as good as money in your pocket and it doesn't dilute you, you know, and you can get these, you can save months from, from having one good conversation. Yeah. Money, money is time after all time is money, money is time. And now, but. I I'd like to, to, to specifically ask you about one thing. And one thing that you mentioned is that, you know, getting that, that foot through the door and for you, yeah, I think it, it, it's very, it's going to be very relatable for a young founder, a very young founder, probably still studying at university. Maybe he doesn't want to go and, and sell to Sony or MTV, uh, but he still wants to go to like an, medium-sized business and wants to to do the, the the mom test right so the the relation is kind of similar okay you have a yc back founder who wants to go on and and pitch a huge company like sony versus a student who wants to go pitch like a like a medium-sized business but the problem is still the same you want to grab the attention and you want to get the foot through the door and the, the common advice is always like go and pitch them on the big vision, right? So how do you really, really balance this? How, how do you impress someone and entice someone to really book the, those 30 minutes with you? So this is both harder and easier now that everything's happening remotely. It's easier because the calls are shorter and you don't need to commute so that the time cost is a lot lower. It's harder because every online meeting needs an agenda. So you need to explain the purpose of the meeting ahead of time. Pre-COVID, what I would normally recommend to students is, you know, or anyone really, is go to where your customers are and find a way to just talk to them about their life. So for example, you go to an industry conference, like if you're selling to mid-sized businesses, you go to one of their, their industry events or business lunches or whatever, and you say, hey, weird question. Like, how are you guys dealing with your email security? I was like, Hey, weird question. Like I'm doing some research and you know, nothing to sell, but I'm doing some research. I'm trying to understand how you, how you, you know, budget for employees or whatever, growing the team. And most of the time people will just go, Oh, that's an interesting question. This is how we do it. 
and they just tell you. And you, you've never even had to set up a meeting in the first place, which is the best way to start because that removes all the bias and it removes all the temptation to pitch your idea. You're, you're just there to understand them like a researcher. At a certain point, obviously you have a product and you have something to sell and you, you need to transition. So first you learn about them and then you transition into what's more of a traditional pitch. What I do online is there's a couple of different ways you can take it. You have to get pretty good at framing the purpose of the meeting. So the structure I use is vision, framing, weakness, pedestal, ask, where I say, I say, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a student at UCL. I'm an entrepreneurship student at UCL. I'm, I'm researching the problems in this industry. So that's kind of the framing. I don't have anything to sell you. However, and then you both reveal your own weakness and you lift their experiences up on a pedestal because everyone's happy to give 10 minutes to help an entrepreneur but they need to know that they in particular are able to help you in particular. Like they don't want to be an anonymous source of survey data, but if there's something unique to their life experiences, to their work experiences, and, and you know about it, they're like, wow, this person understands my experiences and I'm going to be able to help them. I'm going to be able to make a difference. And it's only going to take me five minutes. So I'd say something like, uh, like, let's say, let's go for a consumer example. Let's say it's something about um, parents or all, a lot of parents have been thrown into homeschooling with school shutdowns recently. And a lot of parents are busy and stressed out about homeschooling, right? And so if you were building something to help with that, um, you can say like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing this research or I'm starting this business, don't have anything to sell you. However, I'm having the hardest time understanding how parents are dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis, the frustrations, the struggles, the triumphs. You've been doing it for the last nine months. Like, I know it's hard. You know so much about this. Like, would you be willing to take 10 minutes and just talk me through your experiences. And, and that's the ask. So, and, and people are like, wow, yeah, I get to show off my experience. And, and people love to talk about that. And once you're in that conversation, you know, at 10 minutes, you go, hey, it's 10 minutes. Like, thank you so much. You've helped me out. I, I'd love to continue, but you know, I want to respect your time. And a lot of people will be like, oh, let's keep going. Because for them, it's like talking to a therapist. They just get to talk about all their frustrations and vent and the dramas and, and you're getting all this learning. And normally what happens is, at the beginning, you're just asking about them and you're kind of building up your understanding of the customer's worldview and decision-making process. And after a certain point, you, you have this kind of like pretty good foundational understanding about the industry, the customers, the decisions, the current solutions, the workarounds. And at that point, you start taking these like visionary leaps to possible solutions. And then the conversations change and it's more about like, hey, I think you care about this. Like, is this the right way to deal with it? And it feels more like a traditional pitch meeting. And what's important when you start pitching or demoing or, or whatever, is you're not asking for their opinion. You're not saying, what do you think? You're not asking for a hypothetical. You don't go, do you think you would ever use something like this? Might you ever use this? Yeah, I might someday. Who, who knows? Who cares? Uh, what you want to do is you want to find ways to ask them for commitments that they'll only give you if they, if they actually do care. So it's like, hey, you know, introduce me to your boss or, hey, can we set up the next meeting to go through the product in more detail? It's a time commitment, a reputation commitment, deposit. You know, it eventually turns into financial commitments. And it's a little bit different with uh, a lot of consumer products because in those cases, it's hard to get the advanced commitment. And this is where you just need to lead with an early prototype and then watch their usage and watch the analytics. So you still do that early understanding, but then instead of doing these sales conversations, you're building a quick prototype and, and you're watching what happens there. And the other thing that you can do if you're going B2C is to build a community of your customers. I've been doing this for my current business. Like we serve independent nonfiction authors. Like it's a yeah, fine. There's books, there's software, there's all this stuff that helps them accomplish that goal. And we also set up a community that helps them accomplish that goal. 
So people join the community and the first thing they do is tell me about where they're at and what they're struggling with. And it's like, okay, well, that was free customer development, right? And if you find ways to set up the, a lot of it's controlling the context, like controlling the environment so that the conversations feel comfortable, natural, and valuable. If it feels awkward, if you feel like you need to do this heroic performance to convince people to talk to you, you're probably not doing it right because you're trying to smash through the wall with your head instead of thinking in a more clever way about how do I make this, this a conversation they want to have with me. And I do that. And then also another thing is when you're looking at your leads, don't rank them by profitability, rank them by friendliness and how accessible they are. Start with the friendly contacts first, the people who you don't need to convince to talk to you. If nobody wants to talk to you also, maybe that means that like the space your idea is in is not the most interesting space for that type of customer. You know, if it's an important problem, people are generally excited to talk about it. If they're like, meh, <laughs> you know, maybe that means something. Sometimes the disinterest is the data. Oh, I'll actually, that, that leads nicely to a question that, that was asked by one of the students. Now, if you unfortunately uh, do encounter a, a lot of rejection, be it, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not really interested in solving this problem. It's, it's not that interesting or okay, it is interesting, but then you turn like into the pitch mode and okay, well, suddenly your solution, I don't like it as much. How do you, do you have any tips about like dealing with this uh, rejection? Because obviously the books say, okay, now you pivot, but obviously there is still that like strong attachment to this baby that I, that I ideated and that I want to bring into the world. So do you have any tips uh, around how to deal with rejection? Yeah. So the specific answer is very company dependent. And so it's a place where you want to be using mentors more so than books, because I might say in one case, shut it down. And in another case, keep going. And in another case, change your customer segment, but keep everything else the same. And it's, there's no one size fit all answer for this. And it, it like, this is where you should be using mentors, right? It's like, I, I have this strategic question about what to do. I, I don't know what this data means, but a lot of the time, what's most common is it just means you haven't found your early adopter customer segment yet. So you talk to 10 people, eight of them don't care at all. What does that mean? Does that mean 80% of your target market doesn't care? No. What it means is that two people do care. What makes those two people similar? What makes them the same? Is there something that unifies them as a segment, as, as a type of recognizable early adopter? And once you figure that out, can you go find 10 more people like them? And suddenly you've gone from two out of 10 care to nine out of 10 care, even though you're, you're, you're talking about exactly the same thing because you've figured out who it's for and you're able to go find more of them. So I ignore percentages in the early stage. I don't care what percentage of people say it's an important, it's a, it, it, that can be completely fabricated based on who you happen to talk to, right? I care if anyone cares and I care if once I've identified them, can I find more of them? And if not, you know, coaching is great. Mentorship is great. Even, even talking to your other entrepreneurial peers and something that's really helpful that I would suggest if it's your first business is don't just talk through the end result. Don't say I had a meeting and it went terribly. That's the end result. What you should do is you should actually talk through what happened play by play. So like, hey, I sent them this email. You, you look at the email together, you know? They said this, I set up this meeting. Let me talk through the notes. I said this, they said this, I said this. And suddenly the other person's like, whoa, I see exactly where this meeting went off track. 
And it's really hard to do that for yourself. But if there's two of you who are founders, sometimes it's even hard with your co-founders, but it's, you know, it's doable. But like someone else's company, you know how you can always see the problems in other people's relationships, but you can never see the problems in your own. It's the same deal with, with startups. And so if you pair up and you get these little accountability groups, I did this, we called it a brain trust. We would meet once a week with like five people. We each had our, our company and we'd sort of talk through this stuff for an hour per week. And it was invaluable. I, I did that for all the early years of my, probably the first five years of my startup career, I was doing that. Then after that, it's like, okay, I kind of figured it out. But I, I still call people up for help even now. Um, I'm like, hey, this is what I'm thinking for the strategy. This is why, this is what people have said to me. This is what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Or am I being an idiot here? And people are like, oh no, that's actually probably how I would do it too. I might change this bit. And I'm like, wow, that's way better, you know? And so you, you got to use other people's brains for, for these sorts of choices. I mean, you are making definitely a, a wonderful point. And I mean, that, that is why we are here so that students and young innovators can also exchange these ideas and the networking sessions and, and talk to one another and, and, and meet each other and, and discuss. Now, an interesting point you, you touched upon, obviously the mom test and, and the way you do stuff, it's very focused on as Steve Blank says, like going out of the building, right. And talking to your customers, but still. People seem to have that mental block that, that we spoke about in the beginning. And they try to sort of like bypass it by saying, okay, I did customer validation. You know, I went on this Facebook group and I sent out my survey and 48 people filled it out. I feel like I, I know what the answer might be, but what is sort of your opinion on surveys, their validity and, and that sort of stuff. And, and knowing that you have a net promoter score of, of 6.2 versus 6.8, like uh, all of that stuff becomes valuable after you have customers. So if you already have 10,000 customers, net promoter score is a great way to understand if the new version has messed something up. For example, if you've got, if you're running a burger joint that's franchised and you've got 50 locations, Net promoter score is a really good way to know if one of those locations is being mismanaged, for example. But net promoter score is worthless for figuring out like before you have a product and before you have customers, because like, and all of these things, how important is it to you on a scale of one to 10? Like to me, that has zero data. What I care about is what are they already doing and why are they doing it that way? I want like the emotional story because anything you can get from a survey, you could also get from Google even more quickly. Because other people have already done this sort of superficial industry research, especially in the UK, you can go to the British uh, library, you can request all of these expensive industry reports, they have a copy of everything, they'll bring it to you. Sometimes it takes a couple of weeks because they're off in these big warehouses. But you don't need to reinvent that wheel. And you got to remember the, the goal. Okay, so when you're an entrepreneur, your goal is basically to convert your time <laughs> into a product that people love, right? And, and the way you do that, it tends to be helpful. Like doing 100% programming tends to be wrong because you make too many wrong decisions. Doing 100% customer interviews is also wrong because then your product never moves forward. And as your product moves forward, you're able to ask better questions and get better information. So in practice, you typically want to do both things together in some combination that's you know close to 50-50. Close to but there's there's different ways to approach it. Your goal is to learn if you're building the right thing and build the right thing, right? That's the goal. The goal is to succeed. The goal is not to like do a hundred interviews. Interviews are a tool for learning and they're one of many tools. 
things like all these MVPs, rapid prototypes, paper prototypes, industry research. These are other tools, AB testing, analytics, user tests. They are other tools. All of these are different tools for learning, right? And so when you're first getting started, it's helpful to follow these simple rules of thumb. Like you should always talk to at least 20 customers. You should always do this, right? Because you don't have enough experience to be able to make like a thoughtful strategic decision about the best way to learn. As you get more advanced, what happens is you look at the situation, you go, what data is missing? Like what are the, which of the various tools in my learning toolkit would be best suited for dealing with this? And, and then you're doing time trade-offs. You're like, well, I've got like 30% certainty and to get to 80% certainty would take me a hundred hours. That's not worth it. I'd rather put those hundred hours into the product with lower certainty. And so you, it's like, but that's really hard to teach, right? Because that just comes from, from experience. And so normally when you start out, it's probably a good idea to talk to a, a couple dozen customers, right? It's probably a good idea to begin your marketing alongside your product development. It's probably a good idea to start selling the thing before it's finished. Like these are rules of thumb that work like most of the time. And, and then the other stuff you, you figure out. But for my current business, I'm not doing formal customer development interviews. That doesn't mean I'm not learning. Like we have a community with 200 of our customers in it who spend all day talking about their problems on Slack. When someone reaches important moments, we jump on video calls and I help them out. I coach them through it by coaching them. That's giving me learning. We've got software analytics. We've got like meeting groups. We've got like all this stuff is combined so that I have a really good sense of where my customers are at and what they need and what they're struggling with and what we need to build for them. And like, that's the goal. The goal is build the right thing and, and do it quickly. All this other stuff is just tools. Uh, so. You know, I, I would never force someone to go do customer conversations. Well, maybe I would, I probably have, you know, if they know they should do it and they're not doing it just because they're scared, that's the time to be forced. But like, you know, Hey, if there's a quicker way to learn, then, then, then go with what's easiest. I think you can also like supplement your, uh, customer interviews. And maybe that is the reason why you didn't need to do as many customer interviews for your latest business by actually facing the problem yourself. Do you, do you think it's, it's a good way to supplement? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Scratching your own itch essentially gets you a head start. It makes your guesses better. And so it takes fewer iterations to get to success in most cases. Like instead of like, even something like understanding the industry or having connections into the industry. Sometimes I hear from entrepreneurs, especially students. I don't know why students keep doing this, but they like, they pick an idea in an industry that they have literally zero information or connections into. They're like... They're like, yeah, it's like doing something in the 3D, like organ printing industry. It's like, oh, do you know anything about biology? No. Do you, do you know any scientists? No. And then they're like, why is it so hard to get people to talk to me? And it's like, well, like you don't know any of them. You're a complete stranger. You, you don't even have the most basic knowledge. Like, yeah, that's hard. Can you do it anyway? Yes, you can. But it adds a couple years to your company's like, you know, er, er, early stages because you have to spend so long getting up to speed in this industry. And like, it's crazy because you get to choose the idea you work on. Why not choose an idea that's going to be easier rather than harder? It's still exciting. Like, I'm not saying like ignore ambition and just choose whatever's easy. Like you got to care about it as we talked about at the beginning, but you know, play to your strengths. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what started me on that rant, but <laughs> hopefully it was semi-relevant. Like, I, I absolutely love it. And I'll, I'll touch upon one question we have in the, in the Q&A section. And then I'll follow up with a with a, a question of mine that kind of ties it back into what you mentioned. But for those students that maybe actually do do the reasonable thing and 
try to create, for example, an application for colleges and college students, right? I'm a college student. I know a lot about being a college student. Let me create an app connecting college students. So, that, that has its own problems and dangers. So the, the problem there, this is what Paul Graham calls a sitcom startup idea, where it's the sort of idea that if, if there was like a startup episode of Friends, you know, the writing team who know nothing about any industries would be like, oh, what's like a startup idea that sounds good? And they'd be like, oh, food delivery for college students. Uh, it's like, fine. And the problem with that, you're about to hear um, your next speaker on the schedule I saw is from Entrepreneur First, right? And Entrepreneur First has this awesome concept of called Edge. And Edge is what makes your team uniquely able to execute or to have an advantage on, on a certain idea. And so if it's an industry that you know a lot about, that gives you a certain edge because you have extra insight. You're going to spot better ideas. You're going to have the connections. You're going to move faster. If it's a harder industry to get into, you know, it gives you some edge. If you've got like this incredible rare technical scale, that gives you an edge. Whereas when you think of something like, oh, we're serving college students, it's very hard to imagine what the edge there would be. And so although it is accessible, which is good, it has the downside of having infinite competition, no barriers to entry. Like, and plus, college students are just a terrible customer segment in general because they don't like to spend money on anything except for beer. And so you can't, they're hard to sell to, right? The, the market's oversaturated, like you, you're up against infinite competition with no advantage. So there it's like you're, you're balancing your access against your like business model advantages. You know, like it, how good does this business model look on paper and how capable are we of exploiting it to the maximum? which is, is hard to imagine for most uh, college-oriented businesses. But what I'd love is say like your parents were in a certain industry. Maybe that's enough of a connection to get you in. Or let's say you're doing professional, you take a summer internship somewhere and you get to see behind the scenes in some weird job in some weird industry. Or you're spending all your time as a hobbyist playing competitive video games or collecting nifties and doing weird blockchain stuff. It's like that gives you a view of the future that other people don't have. It's like, those are interesting areas to play in uh, for, for ideas. It's not a guarantee, but at least it's not a total commodity. Awesome. So we are slowly approaching uh, the, the end of our time. Uh, and I would actually like to uh, take it back to, to that, that rant you started. And I, um, even for, before we jumped on stage, I, I made a, a comment on this. How obviously you're from Silicon Valley is kind of uh, unorthodox, where where exactly you have these people who are trying to be the serial founders, creating like 80 billion unicorns in their lifetime. You are happy with having obviously a, a massively uh, successful and a massive, basically like getting into Y Combinator, like everyone dreams of that, scaling a company to getting these really like fortune 500 clients, everyone dreams I mean, about it. We still failed. Don't, don't glamorize it too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then, but then to, to, to obviously contrast it, you go and you say, okay, let me enjoy my life and, and let me do these more like lifestyle businesses. So could you just like compare and contrast these two, two worlds and just like comment whether is it like significantly harder to, to create like this fast blitzscaling startup or is it like similar or? Yeah. So I, I think of when, when you're picking a business idea, there's something that you're optimizing around. And to me, the three big categories are you're optimizing around scale. 
So you're trying to make something big, the normal hypergrowth, or you're optimizing for your chances of success. So you don't care if it's super big, but it, you want it to succeed. And that like, that's common when you're a little bit older and you've got like kids, or you've got a family, or like if your savings are low or you're climbing your way out of debt, you're like, I, I don't need this to be a billion dollar company. A $10 million company is totally fine, but I need like an 80% chance of success because I, I, it cannot fail. So you've got your scale, your reliability, and then the third one's freedom, which is about removing constraints from your life. So freedom of time, place, attention, think about what you want, when you want, where you want. And I've kind of cycled through that. I did scale, then I moved over to freedom and survival because I was just like, I was super broke and burned out. And then it's like, okay, actually I want a reliable path toward financial security and stability and all of that, but you know, on my own terms. And I think a lot about like our investors treated us super well. We had VCs for the first business. And then after that, I've always bootstrapped. And I personally prefer the bootstrapping because I like to take my time. So I don't like the feeling of urgency. I, I like to, you know, writing a book, you take your time, it's a craft. I like that. And I like that with businesses also. However, that means you need to avoid a lot of flashy and good looking business ideas. Like if it's got network effects, if it's winner take all, it's not a great fit for bootstrapping because when it's winner take all or it has network effects, these big competitive markets, you have to go as fast as because only one person's going to win that market and it needs to be you. And so that means, okay, how do we go as fast as possible? Well, like we work hard, we work long hours, we raise lots of money, we go, go, go. And so to me, that's the difference. It's just, you know, right now at this stage in my career, I have ambitions and, you know, I'm, I'm like working because I choose to. I got, um, when I was, I think 32, I reached the point where I never needed to work again, like financially speaking. And that's when I took my mini retirement. I spent three years on my boat just messing around. And then I was like, actually, I, I want to get back to work. I want to build something big. But now I'm doing it by choice. I like my life. And I try to pick ideas that, that, that don't compromise that li my life, but that can still grow into something ambitious, you know, just in a non-urgent way. That's the way I'm thinking about it. But everyone's got to make that choice for themselves. That, that is, I think that is an amazing way to end. So, so Rob, I will give you just like this, this final, final question. Where can people find you? Obviously just from personal, like a personal recommendation is just now all you students go to Google, go to YouTube, type out Rob's name, several good, good presentations. I actually chuckled internally because I, I remember like how you said, like the broke presentation, how you spoke about getting your first investment, having like a dollar in your bank account uh, and then getting that big, big uh, lump sum of money. So a bunch of great talks on YouTube, but where can people find you? Uh, where can they connect with you? Robfitz.com has links to everything. And if you have questions or anything about your business or stuff we didn't get to, basically just leave me a YouTube comment and I'll record you a little, a little YouTube video with my answer and you know, as best as I'm able. But yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I, I wish you all the best with your, your businesses, your career, your, your, your journeys forward from here. Yep. Oh, and, and enjoy the next talk. EF's like such a good program. You know, Matt's a smart dude. And uh, if you can find your way into EF, that won't, that won't do you wrong. That's a great place to be. So anyway, cool. Awesome. Thank you, Rob.